What Do We Do? A podcast discussing wealth management and financial planning. Introducing listeners to the leaders in our community. Hosted by the founder and CEO of Great Lakes Wealth, Dewey Steffen. Alongside WWJ Midday News anchor, Brooke Allen. Hey, I'm Brooke Allen. Our goal with the What Do We Do podcast is to educate listeners on topics that impact your financial growth, your retirement, and your lifestyle. And I'm Dewey Steffen. Join us twice a month as we welcome some of today's leaders in the community for conversations that can help with investment decisions so you can plan for and live your best life. Here's Dewey Steffen alongside Brooke Allen. Well, hello, everyone out there in YouTube world, podcast nation. I'm Dewey Steffen, co-host of the What Do We Do podcast. Brooke Allen is not with us today, but... It's a special guest episode, so I do have a co-host that I will bring in momentarily, but before I do that, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in to another episode here. This is season two, episode 18, number 60, and as a reminder, the mission of the What Do We Do podcast is to provide information to help our community invest for success and be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And one way that we do this is by finding leaders in our community who have a story to tell, knowledge to share, and advice to give. And then we invite them on our podcast and we introduce them to our amazing community. Well, today's guest is one of those fantastic leaders. And to me, he's more of a friend. He's a mentor and an inspiration. He's also a family man, a businessman, a philanthropist, an advocate, and a friend. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Tom Chilani. Hey, Dewey. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm excited about being here today. Well, Tom, it's our pleasure to have you. And before I give you the mic for the next one hour, I'm going to formally introduce you with just a few bullet points so that our audience has a better understanding of who you are, and then we're going to get into it. Is that fair enough? That's good. Okay. So what I know about you, Tom, is that you're born in Detroit. You're a son of Italian immigrants. And you learn the value of hard work at a young age, working for your father in the beer distributorship in downtown Detroit. Is that how it started? That's true. My dad came out of World War II and ended up uh, being a teamster and driving a truck for Anheuser-Busch. And when you were not working for him in the family business, you played some baseball as a youth and kind of had some uh, passion for that. Is that also true? That's true. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you want to get into that career right now, but uh, it got me a scholarship at Central Michigan University, which I was very proud of. And the next uh, in my bullet points is that you went to CMU, but uh, you were not able to stay there because of some situations in your family. Right. My mom, uh, after I got up to school, my mom got sick with cancer and we made the decision to come back home knowing that uh, we wouldn't have her that much longer. And there was never the opportunity to go back to Central because I was then right into the family business, as I always was, but my dad needed me more than ever. So I did not go back to Central, and I stayed in the business at that point. And then the final bullet point I have before I'm going to hand it over to you is that just that you stayed in the family business, and then your father passed away relatively young in your life, and then you had to take over the business, and then it was full throttle. Is that about right? That's true. I mean, um, I was 20 when my mom passed, and my dad, I was 26 when I took the companies over, uh, which was a big hurdle. We were, you know, we were uh, Miller for Detroit, 
And Wayne County, it was a big distributorship, one of the biggest in the country. And Philip Morris owned Miller Brewing Company. Uh, they wanted the distributorship sold and broke up. Here's this 26-year-old guy with, you know, really not much experience. But the president of Miller Brewing Company, his name was Leonard Goldstein. Uh, Leonard's still alive today in his early 90s, teaches at University of Wisconsin. He said, uh, I will take Tom under my wing. I owe it to his father, and we'll get him through this period in his life. And that's what happened. Well, that's fantastic, and that's part of the uh, American dream. It's part of the inspiration, hard work, dedication, but sacrifice, So, um, and having some help from mentors and friends, right? You have to have breaks. I mean, I love talking to my, my friends around the world, or even at the Vineyard, and people that own their own businesses, and I say, tell me about the one break you got in life that launched your business, and everybody has a story that they got a break. And would you say that was yours, was uh, Mr. Goldstein? Oh, yeah. Uh, if he wouldn't have given me that opportunity to put me on probation and, and work with me, uh, we'd have broke it up and be, would have been sold. Okay. Well, then I'm going to have you tell the story from there, and then I'm either going to stop you along the way with the things that I know, or after we get to what uh, is the end that you think, I'll come back and I'll throw you some questions and uh, ask you some, some things that you may or may not uh, be prepared for, okay? Sure. Okay, so we get you to 26 unexpectedly or earlier than you would have wanted are now running the family business and it is a beer distributorship. And then what happens from there? So uh, a few years earlier, my dad moved it to Livonia, Michigan. So we went from Garden City, Michigan to Livonia, Michigan for larger square footage. Uh, and that's in the you know late 60s, early 70s. We uh, had wine at the time besides Ham's Beer, Miller Beer, Stroh's, Altus, all these other brands. Uh, but it was, I think the most, uh, expensive wine would have been Matus Rosé. Probably was the only wine that had a cork in it back in the day. And I say that only because I want people, as we get into the wine business and everything, there was a little bit of history with wine at the distributorship, but my grandfather and grandmother came over from Italy and we used to make two barrels of wine for the family every year. So there was this underlying as kids, we always went to my grandfather's for a few days, made wine, went down to Eastern Market, picked up the grapes. I mean, it was a tradition in the family, um, and we are still huge on traditions in our family, the Italian traditions, making sausage, making salami, making wine, and bringing the family together. I mean, that's what life's all about for us. I've heard that from many Italian families that um, today they don't have a winery. So I'm giving away a little bit of the story ahead of time. They don't have a winery, but they do. They uh, look forward to making um, those bottles or those few barrels and they do it in the basement and they just kind of, uh, you know, keep it that family tradition. So that makes a lot of sense. And again, you've taken family tradition and um, you've turbocharged it and uh, made it something special. Well, you realize that as your children get older in life and they start their families, how important the traditions are to carry them on because we're not going to be here forever, but you hope your children carry those on. Well, let's get right to that. So you are married to Vicki. You have three children, Vinny, Olivia, and Ben. Okay, so when we go through, you can talk about um, how you met Vicki and I've got a great story or you have a great story about uh, the winery probably with her as well and mm -hmm. her role and how it happened when, you know, and well, I'll leave it at that. But what else was happening at this time besides the beer and the wine? Or so, what happened next? Yeah, so I take the beer ship over in uh, 82 when my dad passed. And uh, lucky, my dad had very good employees around us. And my dad was a Teamster, so we had a very good relationship with the Teamsters at the time because we were a Teamster house. And uh, they knew the roots were in my blood to protect the guys and, and treat everybody fairly. And, uh, 
you know, we were, one of the pressures on me was my dad was number one in the country six times in a row. So I'm going into this with high expectations uh, for myself and for the employees that continue on. And we were six times after my dad had passed best in the country for Philip Morris Miller Brewing Company. So uh, very proud of that. Uh, I love the alcohol business. I love the distribution business. I love selling and being in the stores. And I think that was natural for me to, um, and entertain. So it was natural for me to look at a vineyard uh, 20 years ago and move on into the vineyard business. Is that what was next? Because again, you have many um, income streams, if we want to call it that. And we'll talk about the business in detail later, but was the winery what came next? No, no. uh, Casino gaming. You know, uh, we, I had a friend of mine that was a beer distributor that I bought out and he wanted out of Detroit. So we moved him to Las Vegas, um, realized it was a good old boy network in Vegas, very hard to crack the doors, but we had a casino deal down in downtown Vegas. It was Cowboy Vic and, uh, it's the oldest license in Nevada. And we had a a guy from Motown Records that was going to be our partner, and we had some issues there. But we started looking at other places around the country, and South Dakota popped up. And they had a a, a IGT slots, which had about a 75% market share in this country. International gaming gaming technologies for all of you home gamers. Right. uh, So they were selling all their slots to Las Vegas in Atlantic City at the time. That was the only gaming. There was some video gaming starting in South Dakota. We went out there. I bought two-thirds of a company for a couple dollars and capitalized it. What uh, year were we talking? 85. Okay. And uh, in 87, the federal government said, we're going to allow Native Americans to have gaming in this country if the governors in those states concur, and South Dakota was the first one. Now, the problem was Nevada and Atlantic City didn't want any expansion of gaming for Native Americans because they controlled it all. So IGT turned to us and said, we're going to give you the state of South Dakota, and you do what you want with it, you be the distributor. And uh, what we faced back then is being a sovereign nation, you couldn't borrow money and perfect a loan on an Indian reservation, and the federal government didn't have a clue what they were doing with this. Uh, And we did a few casinos out of my pocket. I was out of money. And a little company out of Memphis, Tennessee, knocked on the door called Promise. They owned all the Holiday Inns in the United States or the franchises. And they said, we want to get into gaming. We like what you guys are doing. And we just bought our first hotel called Harris. So that was the start of the Harris company. And uh, we went public and had a great run on the NASDAQ. And I was granted all of North America for IGT slots for natives. So I did every casino from California to Connecticut. We'll stay on the casino train for now. And we'll fast forward then to your um, gaming or casino relationships here in Detroit. Um, I believe there's some with uh, what was the Greek town casino, uh, but also um, up in Northern Michigan, I think it's uh, little rivers um, somewhere yeah. up there, little river casino. Um, so uh, I was doing native American gaming in the country and Little River uh, guy named Bob Ginhart, who was the chairman of the tribe, they had nothing. They were getting some federal money. They had a couple little businesses. They wanted to get into gaming, and they knew I was heavy into gaming around the country. And I was working with John Engler at the time on the compacts in Michigan. Governor John Engler. Yeah, governor. Back then. And back then. And uh, they, we went up there, and they awarded us the project. And then I had to get the property put in trust. But uh, Little River Casino in Manistee, Michigan, turned out to be one of the great projects of all time for our company. wasn't the largest, 
But the people I got to meet and deal with on a day-to-day basis, and I was up there every week. I, I drove up every week, worked up there for three days, lived up there, had a condo. It couldn't be a nicer community. Do you still have any ownership up there now? Or? No. Under federal law, you're up there for five to seven years, and the goal is to manage and train and teach and get them out of debt. And we were able to achieve that after five years, and we were able to turn it over to the tribe. Okay. And then did you do something, or do you have any um, um, interest, vested interest down here, either with Motor City Casino or um, uh, Greek Town, as I said? Uh, so it started with, uh, there was a group called Atwater, uh-huh. and these were, you know, some influential Detroiters, roughly, maybe I want to guess 100 African Americans that had got together and were trying to put something together with city council in Detroit. They approached me on uh, looking at what gaming could do for Detroit. And I looked at it, ran the poll numbers, and said, you know, I think this is something I would like to get behind. So I put the money behind the referendum to have the three casinos in Detroit. Uh, Dennis Archer was our mayor at the time, and we become very close friends and worked together on this. And Dennis did all the commercials and really promoted what we wanted to do. Um, and I can tell you that uh, even though the polling showed uh, $500 million going to Windsor, coming out of our economy, we didn't get one job. We uh, won by less than 1% wow. that vote. And that was worth almost 10,000 jobs to the city of Detroit. Um, all the construction for the three casinos in Detroit, um, you would think we'd have won by more. But uh, back then, uh, it was interesting. Gaming was somewhat still taboo from either, you know, it was Atlantic City and, and Vegas, and some riverboats were popping up then. I remember being in Senate hearings in Lansing, and we talk about, um, how far is the ATM from the gaming floor? So if somebody wanted more money, they had to think about it. So the, it came up as 100 yards as they wanted the closest ATM. Now you go to your phone and download money and play the Michigan lottery and sports bet. I mean, it's just the way things evolve over time. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that uh, later in the show about um, what is now and what is the future and whether that's online gaming, um, online sports betting, all that stuff. And we'll see if you either have any um, vested interest in that now or what your thoughts are on how that um, you know is coming to be. Um, okay, so let's get back to, we'll go back in time, back to those uh, 1980s. And so um, besides the uh, gaming and IGT, what else uh, did you get into um, and... Uh, Go from there. So one important part, going back to how things align when you're doing something big like a statewide referendum for gaming in Detroit, because that was a statewide referendum. Um, You know, I was very close to John Engler, Governor Engler at the time, and they were not looking for any expansion of gaming. They own the largest gaming company in Michigan called Michigan Lottery. And, you know, everybody looks at how they're going to divide the pie up in people's uh, entertainment dollars, and they weren't looking for any expansion of gaming. They already had the Native American gaming happening up north. John Engler, a man of his word, said to me, listen, I don't think you can win this referendum. I'm going to stay out of it, and hopefully I'll never have to deal with it again after you lose. That's how he dealt with me on it. Uh, Dennis Archer felt differently. He said that, you know, I fill this great 10,000 jobs for Detroit and construction jobs, and he says, but I need one favor. And I said, what's that? He goes, sign this confidentiality agreement. I own the T- Detroit College of Law, the Elwood Grill, and Detroit Hudson's Warehouse. I own those three buildings in the entertainment district where Comarca Park and Lions are. He goes, I can bring the Detroit Lions to Detroit if you give me your building for a dollar profit. And I gave up all the properties to bring the Detroit Lions back to Detroit 
And in, in turn, Dennis and I became very close friends and were able to get the casino projects done. Is that right? Yeah. All right, well, maybe we have a fist pump right here for that because you know what? They talk about uh, the Illiches. They talk about uh, Dan Gilbert, but we're going to talk about Tom Chelani Donner. He was the secret real estate uh, ambassador for the city. How about that? Can I give you some street cred like that? Yeah, I mean, I was down there a long time ago. Listen, Mike Illich, one of the greatest guys, Illich family. We were very close. I had an office between Mike and Marion for about seven years. So it was very, it was great times. The Wings were winning. He had just bought the Tigers. They're going to build Comerica Park. Uh, and they they came into Motor City Casino. Uh, that's how they came in. I, I really liked them a lot, and, and with their uh, expertise in entertainment, you know, who else are better than Illiches in downtown Detroit? So uh, it was a great partnership. Yeah, that's great. And again, in Detroit, for all those that aren't from the D, there's a um, you know there's a few families, and again, we're going to add the Chelanis to it that get a lot of the credit for bringing Detroit back after 2008, 2009. And so uh, again, that's where we talk about real estate and uh, developing what was an undeveloped or um, you know just destroyed part of uh, the city. So again, kudos to that, and hopefully you took that one dollar, bought a lottery ticket, and uh, or I don't even know what you did with it, but. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. Hey guys, it's Brooke. I want to take a minute to talk to you about Dewey Stefan and his great team at Great Lakes Wealth. Do you feel overwhelmed managing your assets? Well, Great Lakes Wealth offers Wall Street solutions with Main Street values. That is really what they are all about. They will help you develop a custom financial plan utilizing all of your assets and keeping your goals in mind. That is what Great Lakes Wealth is all about, helping you and your family achieve your financial dreams. So go to greatlakeswealth.us to schedule an appointment today and tell them Brooke sent you. Okay, so now, uh, so what's next? So we've got uh, we've got uh, the casinos, and we're back to the 1980s, and you have some real estate, it sounds like, in there, but um, what's the next project for Tom Chalani? Yeah, so we looked at expanding. I wanted to be licensed in other, we're, I was already licensed in 32 states for gaming with the, my Native American and my distribution company for Sodak Gaming. So I uh, went and got, bought a casino in La Nevada. I bought Frank Sinatra's old place called the Calneva. You know, one of the oldest licenses, again, in Nevada. It had the white line that ran right through the middle of the casino. The casino sat in Nevada. The hotel sat in uh, California. And it was on Lake Tahoe, the North Shore. I had that for about seven, eight years, and I had a blast. My kids grew up there. They were running the tunnels where Frank Sinatra used to run, you know, Merrill Monroe and Kennedy's and everybody throughout that Calneva project. Uh, great history up there in Northern California. Okay, that's awesome. Um, well, let's talk about um, maybe your family for a minute. So when did you meet Vicky and... Uh, uh, and then how, you know, did the kids come along? Were they born here? Were they born there? Um, you know, you are moving around and doing things in different states. Yeah, so Michigan's always been home. We spend, you know, half our time now over the last few years in California, and we'll go into that later why. But uh, Michigan will always be home. My family's here. My sisters are here. So in 1982, my dad was doing a golf outing for St. Mary's Hospital in Livonia. And it was because one of his buddies had a heart attack, and the equipment wasn't up to par back in, in the day, back in the 70s. And the nuns were running the hospital. The Felician nuns were running the hospital at the time. And Sister Modesta, I'll never forget her. And they said, uh, you know, can you guys help us out and do a golf outing? So my dad started it with Nick Canzano and Art Kobazinski in Livonia. Turned it to be three golf courses, doing a great job raising money. And then my dad passes away from a heart attack in Vegas suddenly at Super Bowl in 82. 
Um, the golf outing was already planned. I took it over, and I meet my wife at the first golf outing in 82. She was a waitress in Livonia. Where a lot of the restaurants donated their staff to help us feed everybody and um, have drinks and things, and she was one of those volunteers at the golf outing in 82 in Livonia. That's awesome. And then how long did you date before you got married? Well, I was still maturing, as she would say. Uh, <laughs> so it took about seven years for, for me to come around uh, and get, uh, to get my act together. But, uh, you know, so at 32, I got married, and uh, we started having children right away. So Vinny is 32, Olivia is 30, and Ben is 28. So they were all uh, born here in Michigan, yep. and uh, I know they all don't live here now, but uh, they're, they're considering Michigan home back from the day? or Yeah, so they've lived all over the country. All three of them went to uh, – Vinny went to school on the West Coast. Olivia went to school at the University of San Diego. Ben was in Colorado. Um, ben and Vinny are back here now in Michigan, and Olivia uh, is at the Vineyard in Napa Valley. And uh, again, I know that all three do work for the family businesses. Mm-hmm. We put some S's yeah, in there. There's a couple. Right? And um, so, okay, let's go back to it. So I want to let the audience learn piece by piece about these businesses. So let's um, talk about the next one that uh, comes to mind on your time timeline or just, um, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah, so, you know, back in the uh, mid-'90s, we're in gaming in that, and I had an opportunity to buy Motor City Harley-Davidson. So I just sold it after 23 years, but uh, I love the, the entertainment business. To me, I'm selling lifestyle, whether you're in a casino or you're at the vineyard or whatever we're doing, buying a Harley Davidson or in a recreational vehicle is a lifestyle. And I love selling it. When people walk in the door, they would say, you know, my whole life is going to change. I'm going to meet different people from all over the world. I'm going to get on this bike to go travel. And we did a lot of that for 23 years for Harley Davidson. You may not remember this, Tom, but that's the first place that we met. You were doing a, uh, you were doing an interview for Paul W. Smith, uh, for your foundation, some fundraising. I think it was uh, hunger, your hunger commitment. And, um, it was at the new Harley Davidson. You had just kind of opened it, the one on Haggerty Road. You had moved it from the other location. And if you remember, you were kind of doing a uh, uh, spotlight on the facility, and you were doing a uh, – he had his radio morning show there that day, and you and your wife were on, and uh, uh, you had invited me and a few of my friends to come and, um, you know, just – be uh, I don't know, be the entourage or, or whatever it was, the fan base. So um, I remember that day anyway. So um, uh, how long, I don't even know how many years ago that was, but – well, I think it's about seven years ago, and it was an old Sam's Club that was vacant that we turned into the Mega Mall for Motor City Harley-Davidson. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, so why did you sell it? We'll jump around a little bit. So what made you sell that? Uh, we talked earlier today that, you know, you, know, you, you sell things once in a while, but sometimes, um, you know, you regret it, and sometimes, uh, uh, you know, you're happy that you did. This one may be too fresh for you to uh, know how that's going to turn out uh, in your well, mind. But. It was a sad day when I had to let the employees know after 23 years. I mean, they're very loyal to you. We're open seven days a week. I mean, um, it's just time. You know, at this point in life, I'm focusing and narrowing my focus. Uh, if I can't spend on enough time at a business where I think I'm an impact to the employees and customers, uh, it needs to move on to the next person. And at this business had grown so big at Motor City Harley that it really needed to go to the next level uh, of time commitment from an owner. Fair enough. You got to sacrifice to, uh, to uh, push it down the road sometimes. What, uh, okay, what's next? What do we uh, want to talk about next? 
Well, uh, if you're you know, thinking about all the things, we were, I still love the alcohol business. So the wine, we've had the vineyard for 17 years. Um, being in the beer business, a lot of my friends were wine distributors. So we'd get together and I'd drink great wine and bring Miller Lite chasers if they wanted something different. But I got a chance to meet great retailers that were wine merchants. Uh, Eddie Jonah, probably my mentor that really got me started. Um, Jimmy Lefty, who used to be on 12 Mile and Telegraph with a big uh, wine store. I mean, these are guys that we go in the back room, open great bottles of wine to understand. Eddie Jonah was that guy that said, this is how we're going to pair cheeses and foods. And my wife and I truly got into it after we got married. And we had a little cellar at the last house. I've got a great cellar, Bordeaux cellar, in the house we're in right now that we've been in there for 20-some years. But uh, we love to entertain. We love to cook. But I really caught the bug that I wanted to own a vineyard. Besides collecting other people's wines, I wanted to create my own. And uh, my wife said, absolutely not. We got three young kids. We're not moving to Napa Valley. And I'm thinking to myself, I was a beer distributor. I know how to sell. I love going into stores and opening bottles of wine and and sharing them with people. And uh, I was out in California developing casinos in Northern California. Kept going back to Napa and looking at vineyards. And I fell in love with this 20-acre Tuscan villa was a planted vineyard, had a brand new winery, but the family made the decision to just grow grapes and sell them to other wineries. So it was turnkey. And I said to myself, I pulled the trigger and bought it. I didn't tell her for 90 days. I said, I got to have some people around me when, when I explain this, why we did this. And we went off to the Napa Valley Wine Auction, which is in June, and I had four or five couples with us. And, uh, I thought you were going to say I had four or five drinks, uh, <laughs> wine drinks in me already. Well, I probably did. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had the couples there, and they were all excited. And it took her a couple years to buy in and spend some time on it. But uh, she is the president now of the vineyard, and my daughter lives in Napa now. And they really understand the power of breaking bread with people, having wine and food, um, and how important that is in business and life. And I will, again, for our audience, uh, the viewers, the listeners, Tom bought the uh, winery. You bought it without her approval or her uh, knowledge, and you uh, slow played it for 90 days. And now, fast forward, she is the president of the Chilani Vineyards. Is that correct? That's correct. She so, uh, She's fully engaged. She's all in. Uh, and uh, she loves we love what we do. We meet so many people that come to the vineyard and, you know, you know, you have something in common because they wouldn't be there if they didn't enjoy wine and they always love food. So when somebody's sitting in front of you, you already got something in common. Do you have, um, you know, a special, um, you know, type of wine that you produce there? Do you, uh, you know, the region that it's in, uh, do you have, um, you know, just, I guess, talk a few minutes about the wine and do a little, give us a little sales pitch. Sure. So, you know, even it was new to me, right? So I buy the vineyard and the grapes are still going that year, first year to Sterling Vineyards. On the property is 17 acres of grapes, uh, vines, was Merlot, Chardonnay, and Cab Franc at the time. And today it's a little bit of Cab that hasn't even harvested yet. It was planted a couple years ago. And it's Merlot, Chardonnay, and Cab Franc. And we make three wines from the property. Our Cabernet from day one has always come from high-end vineyards because our the clones and the what we had at the time, there was anything genetically that worked for our land. But today it does, and that's why we planted a couple years ago. Um, you know, we're known as a big cab house. Uh, we make three big cabs, 100% cabs. We make a Malveder cab, uh, Oak Knoll cab, um, and we have uh, a Dore, which 
means in Italian passion and love, which is or like my wedding song was Amore, so Adore. And uh, that is a uh, 100% cab that we only make 200 cases of. It's special. It's the best of the best that we buy. And it's always sees brand new French oak. What awards have you won while you've had uh, this business? Um, I call it the lucky guy award. Um, we have a great winemaker. So Mark Harold's been my winemaker from day one. And that's unheard of to have somebody 17 years in the business stay with you. But Mark and I, he was at uh, Joseph Phelps for 11 years, had a couple hundred point cabs under his belt, went on his own and was very uh, sought after. I was given him by John Schaefer because I collect Schaefer wines. And John said, if I was hiring a guy today, it would be this Mark Harold. And Mark's a very smart guy, got his master's at Davis, UC Davis. Um, but we, we connect. When we make wine, he brings tequila and beer. And uh, we just love life. He's a big guy. Um, but he makes some of the greatest cabs of Napa Valley. We're going to talk later on about, um, you know, the gaming, like I said, uh, today's gaming. We're going to talk about uh, my curiosity about wineries in northern Michigan. So we'll get your uh, thoughts on that. And then again, also talk about tequila and types of, uh, you know, liquors du jour, that sort of thing. But before we do that, let's go to Luna Entertainment. So I don't know where it is in the timeline. I think it was in the late 90s, but Luna Entertainment. And then, um, you know, with the little uh, little music house you have over there on the east side. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. So uh, Luna is really like a holding company, right? So it's the umbrella that holds all the different stuff like Freedom Hill that you just brought up that we've owned for 11 years. But, you know, we go back to I was in the entertainment business, and that was just, to me, it was a natural thing to get together with uh, Joe Vicari, Live Nation, and uh, 313, the Palace guys run the day-to-day operations. So it all really worked because if you don't have a great booker like a Live Nation who is perfect for that size venue like now it's called Pine Knob again. They got rid of the DTE, and now it's Pine back to Pine Knob. Um, Just so you know, all the millennials are confused. Yeah. They have no idea what's going on. We used to call it Pine Knob, and they're like, you know, Dad, what are you talking about? Yeah. Now uh, they're calling it, uh, uh, you know, DTE and Pine Knob, and their heads are spinning. But nice. um, I like we, I like the old school Pine Knob. Yeah, and they're bringing it back. They've got a great lineup. We have the best lineup we've ever had in the history of Freedom Hill. There's such pent-up demand after COVID with the entertainers that they all want to get back out. And so it's going to be a great year for outdoor music. And it seems like to me, uh, with the uh, concerns of COVID, that having an outdoor amphitheater would give everyone a little more um, you know, uh, um, accessibility. I think if I was an artist, I'd prefer to be outside. If I'm a guest, I'd prefer to be outside. So maybe in the past, um, it wasn't the case because maybe the number of seats, or you, you tell me, um, is, you know, the, the way that the, the world has changed since COVID, maybe this has created that opportunity. Uh, it has. I mean, uh, we're, you know, we only have a couple of entertainers and I really don't remember which ones what made it mandatory to have COVID cards and testing prior to coming in. But uh, most people, we had a barrier up front. So the, the entertainers were still 20 feet from anybody, uh, any fans. And they took a little, there was no backstage, you know, meet, meet and greets anymore. Those kind of things changed. But to put the show on, they put some great shows on. And last year, we didn't even know until June 1st if we were going to have a season because the governor was vacillating which way to go and opening outdoor stuff up. Luckily, she made the decision early, and we were able to book some acts. And uh, so that is still part of the Chelani uh, business empire. Is that right? It is. 
okay. know, uh, my kids all worked there as they came in out of high school and into college and their friends, a lot of great memories. And I still make most of the concerts because uh, I enjoy to make sure I like to see if everybody's happy. Uh-huh. And you have a, uh, an amazing uh, fundraiser out there. We'll get to your philanthropic endeavors shortly uh, because they are um, amazing, as you are. But before we get into that, let's talk about some more businesses. Um, I know that you have um, your eye on or some interest in, let's leave it at that, with cannabis. And so as you talked about uh, beer and you talked about wine, uh, we haven't really talked about spirits, but I really would like to hear um, your thoughts on cannabis. Uh, now that it's uh, state legalized, but is it going to become federally legalized? And if so, when? And uh, do you have any, you know, investments or ideas, you know, about that space? Yeah. So uh, my kids talked me into cannabis. You know, uh, I think my son Ben studied it in Colorado at one of the schools, but um, they explained to me as I would always talk to them about Native American gaming. Federal government didn't have a clue what they were giving the Native Americans when they gave them the rights to have casinos. And banks wouldn't loan against it. That's the same thing cannabis faces today. Um, you know, banks are not loaning against it. They don't want anything to do with it. Credit unions are. But some of the banks, uh, larger banks, are not touching it. And really, the federal government doesn't have a clue what they're doing with this. We have over 40 states that have law on the books for either medical or recreation cannabis. Um, that gives you 80 senators that their states have already spoke. It's mind-boggling boggling to me that Mitch McConnell, when we had control of the Senate, did not take the time to get the Banking Act out there to tax, test, and understand what's going on in over a $20 billion underground industry in this country. Makes no sense. And I'm a little disappointed so far in Senator Schumer, who now has control of the agenda, the agenda and hasn't moved it either. Representative Scalise, or Congressman Scalise, was in town the other night. We had dinner at Capitol Grill. And the House has passed it numerous times. And, but we can't get it on the agenda at the Senate to at least get the banking bill passed. So what do you think is next with that, um, with the current administration? You know, there was anticipation that this would be an easier uh, road to get to the finish line. So I'm familiar with, you know, what you've said, but for our listeners and our viewers, uh, maybe share a little bit of, you know, what is it going to take to move the needle? Well, I, it's all about votes. And I think that some of these states that have uh, listened to politicians and voted for them, uh, no different than in Michigan, that uh, it's important that you're backing a candidate that has what you would like passed. Whether it's school reform, it's cannabis, or whatever you're into, you got to make sure you're a candidate. They're getting very organized in this country on the cannabis side because that's the young vote. And they want people in there that are going to live up to their promises and move the agenda. But there is no reason not to move this $20 billion industry. Yeah. And like you said, the banking kind of is the um, is the center of it. Um, and we'll leave it at that. Check out uh, two of our other episodes. We talk about cannabis, and I'm sure we will down the road as well. Uh, but do you think before this current administration uh, is up for reelection, do you think that uh, you know it will become an agenda item, whether that's in the Senate or just, again, on the um, – you know, on the plate of the president and the vice president? You know, I, I, I don't see it making it to this fall. Nobody's looking for any controversy right now. Uh, the Democrats are holding on 
as tight as they can right now to all the mistakes that have been made. A lot of it's timing, but a lot of it mistakes have been made, and the economy's in rough shape right now, and, and we're it's going to get tougher as we move on here with higher interest rates. Um, so I don't see it happening this fall, and I think it looks right now that the Republicans have a very good chance of taking the House and the Senate back. Uh, from your experience, we'll go back to the distributorship of, uh, of beer. We had the president, he's now not the president of Atwater on, a good friend of mine, Mark, but um, he was on our show and he talked about how, you know, it's evolved from the recreational use to the medicinal use to the grass uh, leaf to, you know, now you can infuse it and whether that's into, you know, beverages, et cetera. So from, you know, just your involvement, what do you see about the future of cannabis as, you know, as a, uh, as a product? So, um, you know, I was never a user of the product uh, until of late when we got into this four or five years ago. I started looking at the oils and what we're able to make, whether it's gummies, chocolates. So just like the beer business, I went out and got the, the number one brands, whether it was Heineken, Corona, whatever, Molson. I did the same thing five years ago. I went and got the number one gummy out of Colorado called Wana, largest manufacturer, have their SOPs down correctly. And the number one chocolate company was out of California called Kiva Confections. And I tied those both up for the state of Michigan. So we have a large factory in Chesting, Michigan, which is the first township licensed. We were the first ones licensed in the state, first ones to legally grow and to distribute flour and edibles. Um, so I'm very proud of that because I think I myself as a political, I like to try to solve things with politicians instead of, you know, building up this uh, issues that should be resolved. Like I said, the industry was already here. We might as well legitimize it, tax it, test it, and continue to evolve it. And that's my goal. And they've done that, again, with uh, gaming. Let's go back to that, right? For a long time, you had to go to Vegas, or there were, you remember this, uh, Ladbrook DRC, there were horse tracks. And so you had to, again, you know, bet the Kentucky Derby at a certain location. And now, like you said earlier, everything's on your phone. So um, as the times change and things evolve, uh, you figure that... Um, you know, it's just a matter of time. The, so many states, almost all 50 states have some sort of a legislation on the books promoting some sort of cannabis use, whether that's medicinal or recreational. But um, do you see, again, the involvement, whether it's with gummies or, um, you know, with um, the medicinal side or, you know, um, liquefying it and putting the, you know, beverages? Um, do you see that there's been a, you know, a, um, I don't know a, a movement or a change from how it was 10, 20 years ago to five years ago to maybe five years from now? I do. I mean, I see as my... Maybe the demographic, too. I don't know. I mean... The demographic's changing very quickly to a lot of older people that have either had it in college or have never had it, but they have aches and pains or they can't sleep. Sleep is a very huge common thing for people as they get older. Uh, gummies work tremendously for that. And, you know, I'm into much different than talking to my kids. There's a lot of people that like to get higher doses of... THC in their products. Um, a lot of cancer people in that use this for, for pain and they use it for appetite. Um, I'm more the Miller Lite guy that, you know, I'd rather be at a party and have a two and a half milligram. Uh, we're going to start carrying this product called Pabst Blue Ribbon Seltzer with cannabis infused. Okay. It's coming to the state of Michigan and they're low dose. So guys like to go to a backyard barbecue and have multiple beers. We'd like to be able to do the same thing with cannabis and be able to still, uh, you know, talk to people. 
and not be sitting in the couch. I like the yeah. way you uh, liken it because whether it's beer, wine, hard liquor, doing shots, right? The yeah. the, the the potency of um, of that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, and, and it's much different. You know, a lot of people have never tried cannabis. It affects everybody differently. Um, my wife takes a full gummy at night to help her sleep. I take a half. My, the half for me gets me to where I need to be. But uh, I can tell you on the sleep side, I have more people coming to me and please tell me what I should do. Everybody is starving to get better rest. I've heard that though, micro dosing or something like that. I, I don't do it um, you know, that way, but I've heard um, that that is uh, significant to help people sleep. A lot of uh, like sleep um, you know, disorders that it helps. It does. Okay. Well, I know we're, um, we have time left, but I'm not going to um, go any further unless we talk about the Chalani Family Foundation. And I want to know about its genesis. I want to know about the two, I think the two largest events that you throw per year or that you fundraise for. And then we're going to um, see what kind of conversation comes from that. Okay, so please, uh, let's talk about the Chalani Family Foundation. Okay, so when my wife and I got married, you know, I was already into this giving and, and the golf outing. My dad started for St. Mary's Hospital. Um, and that was our big one event that we did back then in the 80s. Um, fast forward, we start having children and we talk about how are we going to raise our kids? How are, how are we going to teach them the values of giving back to the community? Uh, so we started our foundation when the kids were very young and we asked the kids at a young age, bring us a charity. You do the research, come to the table. All three of you will do it one night and talk about why we should give money to this charity. And we still do that to this day. 20 years later is they bring their ideas, whether it's in Michigan or California or somebody, um, some other state is in need. But we're always open to hear the story from our children because we want to make sure that legacy continues with them after we're gone and their children um, to be able to give back to the community. So, so I can let the audience uh, relate. I know your children are different ages, but roughly what was the age of your oldest and your youngest when this you know, first roundtable happened? So probably Vinny was 10. Olivia eight and Ben was six. So we didn't want to wait too far for Vinny. So let the other one sit there. And, and they always heard about things in school that, that drives that they were doing to raise money. All the kids were at country day back in the day and country day was a big school on raising money for different charities. Uh, so they were hearing stuff. So we thought it was a good time to get started with the foundation. That's fantastic. And so for all of our listeners and all of our viewers, it's very important. You don't have to have, you know, a family business or family businesses and have, you know, tons of money and make this an exercise that, uh, you know, that, that the Chalani's have. You can have your children on a table and give them each $5 and say, let's come up with a charity to give this $15 to if you have three children. So it's all about the conversation and doing what you can. So, uh, you know, you need to make an impact, however it is in your community. It doesn't have to be with thousands of dollars or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions. Now those are needed, whether it's at the corporate level or at the you know high net worth family level. But we're always trying to encourage members of our community to just take one more step down the road and do what they can. And it's not about um, just the giving and the benefit that helps the community there, but you're also teaching your family. You're instilling those values. As you said, you might not be around. And so whether it's um, Again, five dollars per child, and have them tell you, you know, which, um, you know, which charity they want to give that to in the, in the little box on the counter uh, down the street. But so I appreciate you talking yeah. about that, Tom. Yeah. No. Um, in fact, I just would go back. I got my honorary doctorate from Central Michigan University. Um, 
and they let me do the commencement speech to the kids. And one of my points I made is, listen, I know you're buried in debt, and um, it's probably not easy for you to write a check, but I want you to get engaged in your community and donate your time. You don't always have to write the check. And if you do write the check, you got to be engaged in the charity. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't give you that feeling. You got to show up at the fundraiser. You've got to, you know, do the five mile walk, whatever is going on, get engaged, whether it's a work activity or just something from your church or whatever. But I, I really preach that volunteering your time is as much as important. Absolutely. And uh, we do talk about that the uh, scarcest. Uh, asset that you have is your time, no matter who you are, right? So um, let's talk about the foundation. So you and I, we do both serve uh, at Beaumont Health on uh, the trustee board there, but um, specific to your foundation, you're doing some amazing things directly with Beaumont, but you're also, again, doing special fundraising, um, you know, projects. Um, Hunger Free in the D, let's talk about that. Also, stars and uh, cars, cars and stars, stars. Yeah. right? So that's fantastic. So I want to give a little uh, little plug for both of those and talk about Mark Wahlberg and the, uh, the golf uh, coming up this summer. Yeah. So uh, just a little bit on Beaumont, you know, we made the choice, Vicki and I, that we need to work with, we work on the heart. So we have a great machine over in Troy that does uh, stints where the doctor doesn't have to sit over the top of the patient. Dr. Almond, who just passed, one of my neighbors and buddies, uh, was in part of the uh, capital to bring that machine to life. And the goal with that machine is with technology, you'll be able to do a heart surgery from Royal Oak Beaumont or Troy Beaumont in China. So that's, that's the goal of this technology. The doctor doesn't have to be with the patient. So the best specialty doctors will be able to do things all around the world. So that's the goal with this equipment. Vicki and I always made the decision to be involved with children. So uh, the Neato NATO Care Unit at Beaumont Royal Oak has a nice sign for our family foundation. I truly believe that if we can get a child off to a great start in life, and there's no earlier than a Neato NATO Care Unit child, uh, and we can get them healthy, that's a great thing. That's fantastic. Um, okay, so with the funds that you raise, those are, um, you know, some of your focused uh, giving. But how do we raise those funds? I want to give a shout out to my, my boy D, Dario. And uh, let's talk about him and uh, your involvement with uh, cars and cigars out at uh, Freedom Hill. Right. So uh, nine years ago or so, I'm a cigar guy. And uh, I was in New York for a wine auction sitting next to this gentleman named Jude Barbera. And Jude's uncle was Hannah Barbera, okay. the illustrator for yeah. the Flintstones and that. And Jude was great friends or best friends with Fuente. And we got together and he said, why don't you come down to the Dominican Republic and see what we do making cigars? Because you think you understand cigars until you go to a factory. And so we go down to the Dominican with some guys and we're overwhelmed by how cool this was to, to do this with real people on that island. And dad was still alive at the time for uh, Fuente's father um, and Arturo. And we go to this school five minutes away from the plantation and he says, I'm taking you here because we built this school because there was no school out here. The kids were all beggars and worked in the fields. And he says, that wasn't going to work for our family. So they started kindergarten, first grade. The year we were there was actually a graduating class of seniors. All had scholarships to around the world because of Fuente's connections. And I said, Dad, I want to do a fundraiser for you back in Detroit. And he says, sure, okay, June 8th. This is nine years ago. Our first one, we had 700 people show up. And we raised a quarter of a million dollars for the school in the Dominican. Uh, fast forward now, we're in our eighth year, 
uh, a good year this year. We'll go over $10 million raised from this event and uh, the bocce ball tournament that I'll talk about in a second. But we focus on giving people a platform to feel comfortable donating to us. Um, I feel really good about this. I have so many strangers walk up and say, I love what you're doing. I know you're spending the money right. I love where you're going with the money. Um, I'm going to give to you. And that makes my day because I, I, you know, it's about credibility in fundraising. Uh, so fast forward, we make net close to a million dollars now on this June 9th event this year at Freedom Hill. We have 1,400 people, mostly men. And it sells out every single year yeah. as far as I'm as it's far true. as I know. Is that right? It's sold out now. We have a waiting list for 100 people. We're at 1420, I believe. Um, the Fuentes obviously are coming back in. We've had a lot more sponsors. Our lead sponsor is Suburban uh, Automotive Group. And, um, but a lot of other sponsors, Lapari family, I mean, everybody steps up and they're, they have something in common. They enjoy the cigars, but where do you, else do you get almost 1400 CEOs together? And they're all last year was so cool because like the first event after pandemic, everybody was like shaking hands and hugging. Um, but it, it, it it's a special night. We all have something in common. Joe Vicari, uh, does all the catering for the event. Not easy to do, uh, at the amphitheater to serve 1,400 hot meals, but Joe does a great job with his team. Um, and we have great entertainment, and uh, we, we have about 15 auction items. Uh, Suburban has given us a Lyric uh, new electric car, and uh, but we have great trips to the Dominican, golf trips, uh, a lot of great cigars from the Fuente family. What is... Um the end game with that is it going to continue on into perpetuity um are you going to take it to the next level do you just again it's growing it's going fantastically well but you can't have an event where you have a hundred person wait list every single year you need to go to a bigger venue we'll throw we'll do an overflow in my backyard yeah. you know we'll do something there what what's next i don't i don't know if i want to lose that atmosphere that we have at freedom hill you know i have the nuns pray all year long that we have a nice dry day right, right, right. you know fleetions but uh uh, and we've, knock on wood, have eight years in a row of great weather. But, um, you know, it gets to be logistically a tough thing to serve people and and give them the right experience. And we've been able to do that. And I like the idea that there's a little pent-up demand. So we started a second fundraiser. In November, the Monday before Thanksgiving, we take over the Paul W. Smith Show, WJR, and we call it Hunger Free in the D. And we'll take a quarter of a million, $300,000 from the money we just raised and go for matching money for the capuchins and cleaners to try to turn that into six or 700000 within four hours. And we've been able to do it for the last six, seven years. And so that's our second event. It's a bocce ball tournament in, uh, 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 across the palace, the Palazzo de Bocce, Tony Battaglia. And it's just been it's sold out. It's only 160 people. But it's getting everybody back together again, and they, they do the show from there. And then what uh, what happens with those proceeds? Like you said, it's hunger-free in the D. So um, you said it goes back to Capuchin and Gleaners, but uh, what do they use those funds for? So, you know, I don't dictate, but uh, it's it's 99% food, buying food. I mean, Gleaners is um, has so many pantries in the metro area that they service and get food to. Um, and there again is another great platform, the way they bring food in, whether it's Kroger or somebody that has extra food, they find a way to, so it never gets wasted. Uh, the Capuchins are really, uh, uh, they get food from gleaners and they serve it. 
So we're trying to care, cover both ends of that, making sure there's food available for the kitchens, and then Cap Kitchens is close to our hearts, so we uh, make sure we, we stay close to them. And it's in every neighborhood. It's not just Detroit. I mean, I was just visited uh, St. Alexander's is an old Farmington Hills church that is now into being a kitchen, and uh, right here in Oakland County. So, I mean, it's everywhere, and you never should be ashamed. You should take advantage of what we're able to do and help people until they get back on their feet. It's fantastic. Okay, now let's talk about the golf outing real quick, uh, Mark Wahlberg and Beaumont uh, this summer. So uh, they started last year, Beaumont. They've always had a tournament for children, children's charity. Um, but Mark Wahlberg, who uh, befriended Nino Catrero. I don't know if anybody knows Nino. Or m- most people do in town. He owns Bella Piatti Restaurant right across from the Townsend. Uh, Wahlberg's doing a movie in town, staying at the Townsend, goes across to eat, and you meet Nino and you fall in love with him right away. And they became very close friends. And Nino started building the Wahlberg uh, restaurants for him around the world. And um, he, Nino, close to Beaumont also, said, why don't we you know, get you engaged in uh, charity at Beaumont? So I'm not sure exactly, but it's like a 50-50 relationship between Beaumont and the Wahlberg charities. But it worked out phenomenal last year, the Celebrity Tournament. They made a lot of money. It was a very successful event, and it went to a fantastic cause, as you said. Um, and so this year, your family is, I think, uh, co-lead sponsors of the event. Is that right? Right. So the lead sponsor in this is Feldman Chevrolet. Right. And uh, he stepped up last year and underwrote the beginning, which was great. Um, but uh, the, we're right underneath that with Chelani Family Vineyards and the foundation, and there's other companies right there. Um, it's nice to go in early so people can see that and get comfortable that uh, who's who's in already. Have your uh, sources do some more prayers for yeah. good weather that day also. Yeah, um, it's important to have good weather, but, you know, hopefully most of the money's in uh, prior to the event. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, we're slowly but surely running out of time. So I'd like to talk about some topics of the day. And um, before we even get into, you know, the specifics of, like I said earlier, uh, gaming or wineries up in northern Michigan, I really want to talk about the uh, state of affairs across the country, across the world currently. Um, There's volatility in the markets and investments, interest rates, are spiking. Inflation is soaring. Um, There's uncertainty almost at every turn. Uh, Here in Metro Detroit, some prominent companies have either done buyout packages for their employees or have said they're going to be reducing headcount. You certainly um, employ, you know, thousands of people around the country. Uh, So can I get your take on where we are and where we're going and what's it going to take, uh, you know, for us to get out of this uh, from your perspective? So, you know, on the employee side, you know, obviously we've had a lot of employees change careers. You know, there's been a lot the of... great resignation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, they see a, a brighter future. Um, you know, headhunters are all over the place offering great bonuses and things. I, I hope that s- settles down and stabilizes because we've get so, we invest so much in our employees and training uh, that we, obviously we like to have them around a long time. So I think that's going to stabilize a little bit as you start to see more resumes come out from the banking industry, mortgage industry. We're seeing these people right now. You know, I've got ads out there for wine or whatever. There's no experience, but I see what's there, what industries are coming out of. Um, I always like taking people with great personality that are smart. They come with no bad habits, and I can teach them what I need to teach them. But you got to have the right person to start with, be able to, you know, 
nurture them a little bit? Are they willing to learn? Um, so I see that easing up on us right now as the resumes are starting to pour in. Okay. And what about um, you know a slowdown in the economy? So as you're, again, trying to find employees, um, your revenues as a uh, for-profit business owner may be dropping from all the other cross currents that are out there. Um, but we're, so where do you see this year with um, inflation? Uh, do you see it, you know, as the government has said, it will peak and then, can, you know, start to slide back. We don't necessarily agree with that here. Um, we know it won't go straight to the moon, but we don't see it receding back to, you know, where it was last year, but also um, with supply chain issues and just, you know, the other factors out there. Uh, are we in for recession? And I'll tell you what we think here at Great Lakes Wealth. So um, I want to get kind of your, you know, your take as the markets are in turmoil and uh, investors may not be panicking, but we always say, you know, don't panic, just profit figure it out. But, you know, what's your take on, is this a short-term, you know, chain of events or uh, what are we in for? Um, you know, it's a, it's a great question. So going back to 1982, when I took over the beer distributorship, interest rates were 18 and a half percent. So when I listen to people talk about mortgages now at 5%, you know, primes three and a half, and we know it's going to go up as, as the Fed makes moves. Money is so cheap right now. All the business guys I'm talking about are still investing um, they, they're trying to tie up as much money as they can for long-term capital, uh, investment CapEx stuff they're doing. Money is so cheap right now. We just got spoiled at 2%, 2.5% for mortgages in that. But uh, I, I don't see it quite yet. I think we're going to have a, a good finish this year. And I think next year after the elections and we get through what's going on in Ukraine, that things will settle back down. Okay. Uh, so invest for success. Is that right? You know, I, I always tell people, find your passion in life. When I talk to young people, you know, how did you get into this? How did you get into this? And I say, you know what? I found something that I was interested in, and I stuck my toe in. You know, I never want to invest in any business that can take you down. It's so, you know, it's so heavy in, in capital. But I tell them, if you're interested in cannabis, go get a job in cannabis and see if you really want to do that. And then, you know, at some point, maybe you'll get that break. But you got to stick your toe in to get the break. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a great way to segue into my favorite part of the show, Tom. Uh, as you know, this podcast is called What Do We Do? But I like to call this segment What Tom Do. And what I mean by that is, Tom, I'd like you to go and tell our audience what would an 18-year-old Tom do or what would you tell 18-year-olds today to do to achieve success? Well, again, it would be follow the passion, but I think education is very important. Um, I can tell you that mine was cut short for reasons I gave you earlier about my mom. Um, I think it would have been great for me to be able to finish college and, and get some more schooling. There's only so much you can learn from your dad and the people at work. Um, so I, I have always taken the... I surround myself with the best talent available. And I got that from that Leonard Goldstein. He said, listen, you didn't finish school. You don't have all this great experience, but go hire the best people possible and surround yourself with talent. And I've always did that, and I've been able to grow with that. And they've pushed me. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that uh, didn't finish their uh, formal schooling. And... Um 
one of them, Elon Musk says, I didn't go to Harvard, but I have a lot of them that work for me. Right. So I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can achieve success. Education, I agree with you, is so important, but it doesn't mean you have to be first in your class at the top, you know, university in the country. You have to have your passion, study, learn, and become an expert that way. Yeah. One of the things I'm disappointed in, and back when we went to high school, you know, they taught you trades. They had home act. They had things they that kids didn't want to listen to their parents and talk about, but you had to do it because you were in school. We need to get back to that because we're missing some great trades in this country that kids need to be exposed in high school and college to be able to use their hands and do stuff because that might be their passion. It might not be sitting behind a desk, you know, pushing a pencil. They might want to use their hands and build a bridge. I mean, that's what we need to work on. 100%, and I'd agree with you. Um, a lot of it with uh, technology or, you know, computer programming, a lot of it um, is current for, you know, what the kids might be doing with their gaming um, and all that. But uh, infrastructure, the country's infrastructure is over 100 years old. So whether, like you said, it's uh, building bridges, re-paving uh, roads, or wireless, wire, wired to wireless uh, communications. So the infrastructure is all around. Do you see, you know, that um, that's also going to become a positive uh, point for, you know, economic growth in the future? Well, I do. I mean, you look at what we need to do for to electrify the cars and how to get people on the road in this country. That undertaking that's just starting now is going to be tremendous. Uh, there's going to be a lot of jobs available um, in rebuilding this country, the roads, the bridges, so many jobs available without creating, you know, all the debt that a four years in school does to a lot of kids. And they're digging out. But if you listen to some of the politicians right now, they, they might forgive all that. Yes, yes. I have a son who is a uh, freshman at the university. And, uh, you know, he says, uh, if I go for three more years, is it going to be for free? And I said, I don't know. You need to call the White House. And you need to find out what's going on, right? right. So details to follow. Uh, Tom, we're out of time. This has been amazing. And we're going to have to have you back. I might go on record saying I want you to be the first, like, two-time guest on here. <laughs> we didn't even get into half of the things I wanted to follow up about the future future of America and the future of all of these uh, sectors of the economy. So maybe I'll just uh, steal some of your time at one of your amazing events this summer and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, anything that I can uh, have you say or do to wrap up the show today, anything you want to make sure that you get out to our audience? No, I just appreciate do you having me on and being able to tell my story a little bit. Maybe I can uh, get some people interested in getting off the couch and donating their time into charity and maybe even writing a check. If I've got one person to do that today, I'm a happy guy. Heck yeah, that's awesome. You're an amazing dude, and I'm glad to call you a friend. Uh, for all of us watching, for all of us listening, remember to download, like, share, subscribe, leave a comment, tell a friend. This podcast is all about community. Uh, we're so proud to let you know we're over 30,000 downloads. We're getting close to 35,000 downloads, and uh, we're just getting started. So with that, Tom Chalani, thanks again for coming on. As we always say, live your best life, be radically generous. A great big booyah to ya. And episode 18 of season two, that's number 60, and we're just getting started. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
The opinions expressed in this program are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or any specific security. It's only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risks and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional.